0: Good evening, church, and welcome to the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church. I hope that, you're had, that you've had a good day, and I hope that if it has not been a good day, it is getting better even as we speak, not because of my voice, but because we are here together, gathered around the virtual Word of God. And uh, this is our Wednesday night broadcast, and so tonight, if this is your first time with us, we are on for one hour. I will teach for about 30 minutes. My name is Stephen And I am very pleased to have you joining us, and then we'll take your questions live. And so we're looking forward to a great time of being together. Before we launch into our our, uh, thoughts tonight and into our session, I want to mention to those of you that might be new, or maybe you just are feeling nostalgic for the last time that we've said it. Are you ready? Everybody cue it up. Give me a thumbs down or a thumbs up. You know what's coming. what's coming? If you want to know more about us. Go to newarkupc.info. You can find out all kinds of things there. If you're not already in a small group, you need to get into a small group. You can find out information there about that. If you'd like to partner with us in giving, you can do it there. If you'd like to find out when the next small group or next event is, all virtual. We're not yet back on our physical campus. You can find it out there. You can find also all of our old uh, broadcasts in our media archive. That's all there at newarkupc.info. And for those of you that are newer to us, we do broadcast six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday. So we welcome you to join us. I'm looking forward to a great time Friday night. I'll be back with you with a guest Friday night. You don't want to miss it. We're going to look at uh, a real live person in the in our current age that has been on a bit of a spiritual journey, kind of like Abraham. And we're going to take a look at how God works in those transition points and how you hear the voice of God. So you don't want to miss Friday night as well. And you don't want to miss tomorrow night, because there you'll hear another great message coming from the parables. Jesus taught using parables, which I heard one professor define it as stories with a theological punch. They were meant to kind of hit you in the gut, grab your attention, cause you to sit up straight and pay attention. And so Jesus would use these parables. And he even told his disciples, it's a little bothering that he said this, but he says he did this in order to separate those who had ears to hear what was truly being said from those who did not have ears to hear what was truly being said. And so uh, we're looking at over the next, actually, I'll let you in on a secret we hadn't told you yet, but we're going to do parables next week too. So we've got actually this week, we're working with Jesus' parables, and next week, we could probably go six weeks on them. He had so many parables. uh, The rabbi taught using these parables, but Tonight, I'm going to take a look at one that actually shows up twice in the Gospels. And in each particular case, it's used a little differently. Uh, the Gospel writers present Jesus as actually making a different point using the exact same parable. And so uh is on with me tonight. She's my tech support. So everybody uh, give her warm greetings and just fill up the chat there. Tell her that she's doing a great job, even though she hasn't done anything yet but tell her, because then she'll do a better job, all right? So let her know that you appreciate her time being on with me. I do. Thank you, Erica, for being here. And so let's go ahead and jump in in Luke chapter 15. This is the first place that I want to take a look at um, the parable that we're going to look at tonight. So Luke chapter number 15, and uh, beginning with uh, verse number one. But I want you to notice that tonight I'm using the message. So this one, this one will get a little corny at, at, at times. A little vernacular, but I want to do that on purpose because Jesus would speak in the language of the common people. And uh, Eugene Peterson, who's the translator of this, he's now deceased, uh, started his project, the, the message started actually out of a men's group in the midst of violence in the city of Baltimore, where he was, he, people were having racial conflict and uh, he was bothered by how they were reacting. Christians weren't being Christians. And so he sat down with a regular translation and, and and tried to teach them and they weren't getting it. And so he then sat down. He had uh, good biblical studies chops he could he could translate. And so he sat down and he translated into language that was much more common and, and, and felt more like Baltimore. And the next time he had studied with these men, it worked better. And so from there began a, a, a really long project of translating the Bible uh, into what I would call the vernacular language. Uh, and so the message is meant to be a little loose. You don't want to use it to do deep study, but tonight I want to use it to kind of tell the story and, and to unfold it tonight. So Luke chapter 15 and, uh, beginning with verse number one through verse number seven. So the scriptures tell us by this time, a lot of men and women of questionable reputation. Okay. Everybody I want you to notice that it's not just a lot of men and a lot of women. There's a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus Listening intently. Now, this sounds like my kind of church. Okay. I want to be in a place where all kinds of people who need the gospel are hanging around and they're listening. But the Pharisees and the religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. Okay. So they they are bothered by this. They're like, if you are a man of God, why are this, why is this riffraff hanging around? And I love how Eugene puts this, he says they growled. I don't know if they actually growled, but the idea is is that they're grumbling, they're upset, they're unhappy. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their grumbling triggered this story. So the the parable that we're going to look at tonight, remember, it's a story with a theological punch. The parable was triggered, as Luke presents it in Luke chapter fifteen, by Men and women of questionable reputation, sinners, hanging around Jesus, wanting to listen. And the Pharisees and the religion scholars grumble about it. And so Jesus responds, not with a lecture, but with a story. So he looks at the crowd and he basically says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and you lost one. The commentators say that that would have actually been a smaller flock. Typical shepherd's flock of uh, would have been about 200. So this isn't somebody that's got a huge flock. It's somebody that's going to be paying attention. 100 sheep and one's gone. And Jesus looks at the crowd, including the Pharisees, including the disreputable folks. And he says, wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness? Maybe it's the pasture. Maybe it's the, you know, the, the where where you would be working with the sheep. And go after the lost one until you found it. So wouldn't you leave the 99 and go after the one that's lost? Jesus goes on. He says, when found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders, rejoicing. And when you got home, you would call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I've found my lost sheep. And then Jesus makes his statement. Only after telling the story with a theological punch does Jesus then make the statement, count on it. So whether you agreed with Jesus' statement, whether you answered his question, wouldn't you leave the 90 and 90 and go look for the lost one? Wouldn't you rejoice when you found it? Whether you agreed or not, he basically answers his own question and says, count on it. You got 100 sheep, you lose one, you're going after the one. Count on it. And then he makes the statement, the theological punch, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus says there's more joy. He did not say that God is not pleased when we are righteous, when we are good, when we do what is right. But he said there's more joy when a lost one, when a broken one, when a disreputable one, when a sinner is rescued. So obviously, you can see the context here is that the Pharisees are trying to make this exclusive. And Erica, you can go ahead and drop that scripture down for me and just hold for my next my next point in just a moment. So they don't they want to make this an exclusive club. It's got an entrance fee. It's your righteousness. Do you dress right? Do you talk right? Do you act right? Do you know the right people? Do you act the right way? Now, please do not get me wrong. You are literally in this story looking at the son of God. You're looking at a perfect human being. You're looking at the God who in his spirit spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him all the commandments. So please understand, God is still righteous. But they think that's the entrance fee. The people have gotten confused. The Pharisees, the religion scholars, they've gotten confused. They think that until you have become righteous, you cannot come into the presence of God. And what they have missed is the reality is is the only way you're going to become righteous is to be found by God. It's the flip. You have no shot of being righteous without his help. You're lost unless he comes and finds you. And so they're trying to, these people that are listening, and some of them may not have been willing to follow Jesus, but the starting place is to listen. So first thing I want everybody to understand is Newark United Pentecostal Church is a church where everybody is welcome to listen. I don't care how you dress. I don't care what you think. I don't care whether you agree with us or disagree with us. I don't care if you think we're the most horrible thing that's ever hit the earth or whether we're the best thing since cheesecake. If you're willing to listen, if you want to come, welcome. We're not going to look at you funny. We're not going to make any demands of you. We're just going to simply be who we are. You be who you are. And see, this bothered the religion scholars. It bothered the Pharisees. It's like, I I don't like that. We don't like this. Jesus, you need to set up some safeguards. You need to set up some gateways here. And so Jesus tells this parable, 99 sheep, one sheep. One's lost, 99 are safe. Which do you pick? Jesus says, "You go after the one, because heaven rejoices more when one who is lost, one who is disreputable, is found." Now it rejoices in the righteous. So all of you that are trying to do well and and God has worked in your life and you're you're doing better. You're not doing what you used to do. You're you're speaking better and you're dressing better and you're acting better and you're and all of these kinds of things. It's not saying that God's not pleased with that. But the rejoicing, the greatest amount of joy occurs when one who is lost is found. When one who is disreputable is reached by the master. When one who doesn't dress right or doesn't smell right or doesn't talk right or doesn't act right. The outsider, if you will. When that one is rescued by the master. So this is critical to understand. This parable is critical to understand how God looks at sinners. And boy, oh boy, there are plenty of churches that need to get a good old dose of this lesson. All right, I'm not here to judge them. I'm here to talk to Newark UPC. I'm here to talk to our guests and our visitors, all of you that are on tonight, to simply say that church is not the gathering place of the people who have it together. Church is the place that the shepherd wants to bring the lost. He wants to bring the disreputable. He wants to bring the ones who don't have it together. And the attitude of the ninety and nine is critical in the midst of this dynamic. Because ladies and gentlemen, I hate to break the news to you, but if you force Jesus to pick between you and the sinner, he'll pick the sinner every single time. And if you don't believe me, go and read the Gospels and see how many Pharisees got a tongue lashing from Jesus because they kept trying to force him to pick. And when you force God to pick between the whole and the broken, between the sinner and the saint, contrary to tradition, he never picks the saint. He always picks the sinner. All right, there's more parables about that, more stories about that. Let me pause there. So, Erica, drop up real quick our vision statement for New York UPC. Many of you will know this vision statement. You've seen it before. All making disciples of all. All right, now, this sounds really cool, doesn't it? Okay, this emphasis upon all. We live in an age in which inclusivity is an in thing. It's it's an accepted thing, all right? But this 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 all bit is a little complicated. This all bit is easier said than done. And furthermore, let me immediately challenge you to recognize how does this work if Jesus is going for the one and leaving the ninety and nine? How does this work? If Jesus is always picking the outsider and not the insider. See, our instincts would be that inclusion would mean that you figure out how everybody's needs are met or everybody is happy or everybody fits in. Well, I got a news flash for everybody. I don't know how to do that. God doesn't know how to do that. Not in this broken world. It's impossible. And so Newark, as we are diverse, as we are diverse in our economic backgrounds, as we are diverse in our language backgrounds, as we are diverse in our racial and ethnic backgrounds, our countries of origin, as we are diverse in our educational backgrounds, do I need to go on? As we're diverse in the sense of our male and female, I mean, how, more, how much more diverse do we need to get than that? Okay. Um, I don't want to get into trouble here, but men don't understand women and women don't understand men. And frankly, can I let you in on a secret? Women don't even understand all the other women, and men don't even understand all the other men. So there's all of this diversity. How are how are we to be all? How is this emphasis of all to carry out? And particularly when we keep in mind and we keep in view this parable in which Jesus said, There's a hundred sheep, one gets lost. You leave the 99 and you go after the one. Well, here's what's interesting. I'd like I'd like to perhaps Jesus in his second application, because he uses this story twice, Luke presents him in, in telling this story when he's getting criticism about the questionable uh, people, the people with a questionable reputation. But Matthew presents a different picture. And so let's turn there. Matthew chapter 18. Now, any of you, does, does your ears... Uh, Perk up right there. Did you pick up Matthew 18 and go, wait a minute. I know about Matthew 18. Matthew 18. What's Matthew 18? Steve's always talking about Matthew 18. Well, Matthew 18 is the passage that tells us how to handle conflict in the church. Ooh. You mean Jesus told the story of a hundred sheep and one got lost in the context of conflict within the church? Yes, he did. And I'd like to submit to you tonight that as we look through this passage, we may find out a little bit more understanding of how this all bit works in the kingdom. But let's read first. So Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse number one, at about the same time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, who gets the highest rank in God's kingdom? Oh, that's that always makes everybody happy when that question gets asked, right? Can I be first? Me, 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 me. Yeah, that always makes our brothers and sisters happy. I mean, it doesn't work well with children, and it definitely doesn't work well with adults. So Jesus takes this question that the disciples have asked, and he gives an answer. Scripture says, for an answer, Jesus called over a child whom he stood in the middle of the room, and he said, I'm telling you once and for all that unless you return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Wow. That's quite a statement. Jesus says, you don't even get the peak, let alone be invited in. He goes on, he says, whoever becomes simple and elemental again, like this child, will rank high in God's kingdom. What you got to understand, and we've alluded to this over over several lessons over the last few months, I've heard different folks uh, point this out. Children in the ancient world did not matter. In fact, a lot of our third world countries, it's the exact same way. Things are so competitive. Things are so constricted. Poverty is so bad. Resources are so scarce that children are at the bottom. People have gotten used to high mortality rates for babies and so the reality is, is that children don't rank. In fact, in our a lot of our missionaries have this challenge is they'll run crusades and the adults will come, but there'll be no provision for the children to receive the Holy Ghost. No provision for the children to, to pray because children don't rank. So understand this is the context in which Jesus is operating. They're asking, these adults are asking, who's the greatest? How do we get to be number one, number two, number three? And Jesus calls, you got it, An outcast, an outsider, a marginal person, a child, puts him in the middle and says, by becoming a loser, by becoming like this child, by becoming simple and elemental. What's more, he goes on, when you receive the childlike on my account, it's the same as receiving me. Now you go and study it out in other translations, but Eugene Peterson picks up that there's a pivot point, and we'll see this as we continue to read, there's a pivot where he ceases to be talking about children, and now begins to talk about all people who are taking on like childness. Remember what he said above, unless you become like this child. So now we're not really talking about children, we're actually talking about the characteristics of this child. And he says, when you receive the childlike on my account, not the ones that are first, second, and third, not the important ones, not the Pharisees, not the religion scholars, not the high and mighty, not the senior pastor, not the lead pastor, not the pastoral team. No, when you receive the childlike on my account, it's the same as receiving me. Then he goes on, he says, but if you give them a hard time bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. We many times talk about this in relation to abusing a child, but please understand Jesus' application here was much broader and much deeper than just children. It includes children, it's the simple, it's the vulnerable, it's the disreputable, it's the outsider. It's the lost one. He says, if you bully them, if you take advantage of them, if you give them a hard time, you'd be better off dropped in the middle of the lake with a millstone around your neck. Doomed to the world for giving these God-believing children a hard time. Hard times are inevitable, but you don't have to make it worse. And it's doomsday if you do. Then he turns and he says this little phrase that we we tend to not realize what he's talking about. So we we're like I got to cut off my hand or I got to cut off my foot? If your hand or your foot gets in the way of God, chop it off and throw it away. Jesus really isn't talking to you about cutting your hand or your foot off. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owners of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. Again, he's not saying pull your eyeballs out. Remember Jesus talks in stories with a theological punch. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 2020 vision from inside the fire of hell. Now, in case you thought he moved on, watch that you don't treat a single one of these childlike believers arrogantly. You realize, don't you, that their personal angels are constantly in touch with my Father in heaven. Wow. And this is the context where he says, look at it this way. If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, doesn't he leave the ninety and nine and go after the one? And if he finds it, doesn't he make far more over it than over the ninety-nine who stay put? Your father in heaven feels the same way. He doesn't want to lose even one of these simple believers. So Luke very explicitly presents to us Jesus is dealing with Pharisees and religion scholars who want him to set aside the disreputable, the sinner. Now Jesus in Matthew is taking it to a different place. It's consistent with what he said in Luke, but it goes even further. Not only is it the disreputable one, not only is it the sinner, the outcast, the outsider, but it's also that single believer that's struggling, that single believer who is simple, that single believer who it's easy to become frustrated with. He says he wants, he didn't want to lose that one. And then the verse goes on. And you all know this verse because we spent a lot of small group lessons on this. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. Try what again? Try to work it out between you. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church... You'll have to start over from scratch, confronting with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. When you, what you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. Boy, I could spend a whole lot of time, but I don't have the time tonight, unpacking how we use agreement in prayer and how we use gathering together. It's in the context of making things right. It's in the context of the hundred sheep with 99 okay and one loss. So, what's going on here? And how does this apply to all making disciples of all? Glad you asked. The first thing that you have to recognize is the only way this works, the only way this is not confusing, is if you don't make yourself the one. Now, I'm going to go slow for this moment here. I want people thinking. If you're scrolling, I apologize. Maybe you need to scroll on and come back later. See, God's emphasis is going to be on the one. But that is not to the neglect of the 99. No. The reason the shepherd is willing to leave the ninety-nine and go for the lost is because the ninety-nine are already secured. And he's counting on them to stay secured while he expends the effort to get to the one who without his effort is sure to die. Well, that, that sounds like there'd be no way for this to work, right? Because then my brother or my sister's need is going to leave me neglected. Or if I insist on being taken care of, then they will be neglected. Now, here's the key. You have to trust your heavenly father to know when you're the one. You as a Christian, you choose. To esteem, to value, and to care for your brother and sister over your own needs. This is how the all works. Now, here's what's ironic. The more we become righteous, the more we tend to become demanding. Yes. I said that, and I stand by it. We lose sight of what it is to be lost. We cease to know the absolute peril of that lost state. We become like the Pharisees. We become like the religious scholars. We become like the person who is offensive to their brother or their sister. Hear me, church. There is literally no circumstance in which you are supposed to be offensive to your brother or your sister. (laughs) Yeah, you're not. Now, I'm not talking about us being obedient to Scripture, but even when we're obedient to Scripture, we do not have to be harsh. We do not need to bully. We do not need to speak condescendingly. We do not need to treat one another in any way except the way our master has treated us. What do you find when you come to God? When you've sinned, for example, do you find condemnation? I would submit to you according to the Scriptures. You find a God who gives you direction. He gives you correction. And he gives you forgiveness. And he gives you the power to start again. Is that how you treat your brothers and your sisters? Are your needs more important than the needs of the church? Well, I'm a part of the church. Who's going to take care of me? your brothers and sisters, who themselves are not valuing themselves over you, but instead are valuing you over them. And you should be doing the same. Erica, if you'd scroll back there and find our vision statement again, that's how the all works. If everybody is operating this way, then everybody is being cared for. Leadership is called to lead in that manner. When you pastor a church where everybody is pretty similar, which, by the way, in America, that's going to get harder and harder to do. There are less and less little towns and little holes around our country where everybody's kind of the same. Even in our little towns, there are things coming there, people moving from out of the they, they aren't even from this nation. They might be from someplace else or definitely a different part of the country. And so you got diversity happening everywhere. The South isn't the South anymore, and the North isn't the North anymore. The West isn't the West anymore, and the East isn't the East anymore. Even Central America is not Central America anymore. So this idea that the way you pastor or the way that you care or the way that a church is run is that you find people that are like you and that way you're in a comfort zone and you don't have to bend too much. That's not how it works. Well, we just need to do a consensus and figure No, that's not how it works. Everybody treats their brother or sister as more important than themselves. That's what Jesus is asking when he turns to the one and leaves behind the ninety and nine. Jesus is not an idiot. Shepherds were not idiots but those sheep were fed. Those sheep, those 99, they were in the fields and they were secure. They had water. They were not at that moment distracted. There might've even been another shepherd there. There might've also been some sheep dogs. There could have been other things. There might've even been a a pen uh, somewhere around there. There were various ways that those 99 were cared for, but the one, the one took the priority. My dear brothers and sisters, oh, I could go on and on, but I don't want to tonight because we need to turn to questions. Uh, so, Erica, I hope you got that going. I see that you do. Um, but let me wrap this up very quickly. Please understand. The priority is always on the new person. The priority is always on the new person. See, well, I don't, I don't really like that. I, 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 I have my needs. I, my needs need to be met. They will be. When you put the priority on the one. Because when you cooperate with the shepherd as he reaches for the lost, guess what he's going to also do? He's going to add that lost to the sheep, to the ninety and nine, and he's going to care for the ninety and nine, even as he reaches for the lost. If you force Jesus to pick between the lost and the found, he'll always pick the lost. If you force him to pick between those of us who maybe are more mature as Christians and we've learned some things. And those who are more simple and mm, they're still a little wet behind the ears, so to speak, or they're green or they don't know what they're doing. You're going to lose every single time because he's going to pick the lost one. He's going to pick the hurting one. He's going to pick the unrighteous one. He's going to pick the publican not the Pharisee, for those of you that know the parable of the publican and the Pharisee standing in the synagogue and praying. He's always going to pick that one. He rejoices when the lost are found. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul seemed to have picked this up as well when talking about things that were not so much right or wrong, but just disagreements about right or wrong, whether to celebrate a particular day or whether to eat meat or not. And what did he do? He said the responsibility for what to do lies with those who are strong. It lies with the righteous ones, the ones who are not as lost, the ones who are, they've already been found. They're the ninety and nine. Now, what happens in many churches? In many churches, we guard our righteousness by demanding that those who do not understand our righteousness get it together or get out. (laughs) The moment you feel that you understand something with maturity and with knowledge is the moment you are responsible to care for the one who doesn't understand. The 90 and 9 if they want the master to care for them, need to value the one in exactly the same way that the master does. When you do that, now the master does not have to pick between his 99 and his one. He can take care of both. He can provide for both. Now we have a scenario where all really means all. All. It really does. And I'm not talking about people who don't want to follow the master. I'm not talking about, but you know what? As Sister Leela did a great job, I think it was Sunday night. I can't remember the exact time, but she did a great job talking about it's really hard to tell the difference between weeds and immature wheat. It's really hard for us to know whether that sheep is simply lost or is running away and cannot be found. So you know what our default is? Lord, let us participate with you in saving them. Let us participate in growing them. Let us participate in making sure they're included. And it is interesting to me, and this is my final statement, it is interesting that how to resolve conflict within the church between fellow believers is situated immediately following the story of 99 who stayed behind and one who was found. Jesus doesn't want his sheep lost, any of them. Jesus is going for the all, and so should we. All right, Erica, are you joining me? And we're going to pop up some questions here. I hope, folks, that you've enjoyed this. Now let's see if we've got some questions coming. And don't be nice about it. Give me some tough questions. I'm ready for tough questions. Give me practical ones. Give me ones about how this works. Tell me you don't like what I'm saying. Come on now, let's mix it up a little bit. We got a good audience tonight. Let's see what we got. Do we have any yet, Erica, or do I have We we have one. We We do have one. one. Well, let's start with that one. All right, here we go. In In terms terms of of going after, what is the difference between someone who has lost and someone who has left? (laughs) All right. There's a reason that Lila is our executive pastor. So first question is, Which parable are we dealing with? What I did not for sake of time do is read to you that there are two more parables in Matthew that are told, excuse me, in Luke that are told. One is the lost coin. Woman loses a coin, sweeps her whole house, finds the one lost coin. And most people characterize the coin as being so dumb. It's insentient. It it doesn't know it's lost. It doesn't know it's found. It never knows anything. All right. But then there is also what we call the prodigal son. It's not really the prodigal son. It's the son who refuses uh, to be obedient to his father. He insists upon taking his inheritance and he leaves. And what's very different is if you take that parable, the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the shepherd and the woman go after those things. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. The woman goes after the lost coin. But in the story of the son, the lost son, or to put it in your terms, the left son, the one who left. The father does not go after the son. And so your question actually taps a larger picture, which is rightly discerning, and a lot of this has to do with God, discerning the heart of a person. Because if a person is running away, as opposed to is lost, if they're running away, you wait for them to return. If they are lost, they know they're lost. The sheep knows he's not that that it's not with the flock, but it doesn't know how to get back to the flock. It may have fallen into a crevice or a crack. It may have gotten into a tough place, and it needs the help and the assistance of the shepherd. The coin has no clue when it's found or when it's lost, and that's many of us. We were coins. And somebody had to come into our lives to even bring us. And so there's almost a sense in these three parables that in Luke are presented together that there's a movement. You start out being just totally lost. Don't even know you're lost. Don't even know what it means to be lost. You're clueless. Then you move to a place where you know what it is to be a part of the flock and you know what it is to be lost. But you're one of these simple ones. You lack maturity. You lack maturity. And so you sometimes you get distracted or you get pulled away from the flock or you get into a tough spot and somebody needs to come and get you. Somebody needs to come and assist you. And then there is what's characterized. And remember, it's a story that's not necessarily true. In fact, most of the parables Jesus taught were not true with a (laughs) theological punch. Then there's a point where we know we're lost. We left and we know how to come back. And that's exactly how Jesus characterizes that the son comes to himself. He wakes up one day and goes, what am I doing? Why am I in this place? I am going to go back to my father's house. I'm going to go back and ask for forgiveness. I'm going to go back and ask for my place. And so the fact that these stories are linked and work together, I think, I believe Jesus told them to tell different aspects of how it works. And so the going after is actually less us going after and more us being the 99 while God goes after. Now, I understand that sometimes he uses a pastor to do that, or maybe he's using one of you as a brother or sister who has contact with that person or any number of other ways. So yes, the body is involved in it, and therefore our metaphors and our images get a little bit mixed up. What's the role of the 99? There you go. Okay, so I'm starting to answer that. Thank you, Erica, for pulling that in. So the role of the 99, our first responsibility is that we stay put. Let's not get it like the older brother, an attitude when things aren't going our way or the master is putting some attention upon the lost one. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is to be sensitive to the master. If we are a part of, and here we're going to mix metaphors, we're a part of the body that he needs to use to reach that person. And that imagery is coming from the apostle Paul. Many members of one body, unique members of one body. And it's not always the preacher or the pastor that's doing that. Sometimes it's a member within the body of Christ that you wouldn't consider yourself a leader. You wouldn't consider yourself fill in the blank of whatever, whatever it is. But you're a member of the body and it's through you that Christ is able to reach to the lost, to the marginal. But I think our first role is to recognize that it's not about us. That's the starting place. We trust the master to care for us. We don't insist on it being about us. And where I see this getting out of whack, anytime it does within church context, is when saints forget that church is a place for sinners. Period. And the more saint-like they become, they have a tendency, unless they're intentional, to get very interested in where's my water and where's my grass. It's all about me. And historically, that's when messages like this one, um, lessons like this one, are taught by leadership to call the flock back to its original purpose. We exist to bear witness so that others may come, not to set up barriers, not to create separation like the Pharisees and the religion scholars. Any more, Erica? Okay. You mentioned prayer and how you could go on and on about what happens when we join together in prayer. Would you do a follow-up message about this? Uh, yes, but uh, Amy, I will throw in a little something real quick here because I actually thought that this might pop up in questions, and that was actually a, uh, a trailer. So everybody, give Amy a thumbs up and a hands hands uh, uh, a clap for uh, being sharp and picking up on my hook. I actually threw that out there to see if somebody would ask the question. So. The first thing is, I'm not telling anyone that you, when we call someone and say, hey, would you agree with me in prayer, that that is, that's not legitimate. It is. There's absolutely nothing wrong with us joining together in agreement with one another. But if that's all you think that passage means, then you've missed the main point. The main point is, there is not to be separation within the body. And so Jesus is saying that when there is not separation within the body and you pray, that environment of agreement, that environment brings my presence into your presence. Because when you gather together, and here again, it's not just a literal physical gathering together, but rather it is a unity. It includes physically gathering together. But it's about unity. It's about understanding that the body matters more than me because then the body cares for me. It's not manipulative, but it's, it's esteeming and valuing your brothers and sisters more than yourself, trusting that the master is esteeming us all. And so when we do that, Jesus is saying there is power in my body. Here I'm using another language or there's power in my flock because they are gathered together. And in fact, without getting myself into too much trouble, that's part of the deal. The wolves don't go at the whole flock. They try to pick off the straggler. So there's power when you are bunched up together, when there is unity together. There's power in our prayer and Jesus takes it all the way to the place that it's it has eternal consequences. When we speak on earth, it 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 has effect in heaven. And we use it all the time as if we go around, well see, I have the ability to you know, make something happen in the spirit world down here. No, that's not what Jesus was saying actually. Yes, you have impact in heaven, but you have impact by how you treat one another. Another great passage that that supports this Amy would be uh 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul reprimands the Corinthian church for being dishonorable to the body of Christ and how they're treating one another. So how we handle one another, how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, how we handle ourselves, how we handle ourselves when something wrong has been done. Do we go and make it right? Do we go and bring unity back? Notice Matthew 18. We know that passage for that reason. This is all about our gathering together and our prayer. And that's why Jesus, I believe, inserts this here. And says, this is about the sheep understanding the priority of the one in the all. All right. I have a question, but I typed it in too. Okay. So how does this apply to if a brother or sister is struggling? Since we are not supposed to be the one, how does that apply? Okay. Excellent question, Erica. So. I am not telling you that you cannot make your needs known to the body. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if the body is functioning the way Christ intends it to, the body is going to place a priority upon the one who is lost. And here, the concept of lost Jesus clearly uses it in two senses. One is the one who's a disreputable sinner in Luke. In Matthew, it's the childlike one. It's the simple one. So I believe that Jesus is not, and parables are like this. They're very flexible. That's why Jesus used them. It's not about identifying who's the one. There are all kinds of people who at various points within their life will be the one. Their needs being known is not a problem. Them making their needs known is not a problem. This sheep being lost may well have been within sound of the shepherd. In other words, he can hear it out in the in, in way from the flock, bleeding because it's gotten into trouble. And then he leaves that flock and goes and gets them. But I am submitting to you that what allows us to, to actually make the audacious claim that all are welcome and all can actually be cared for, is if all of us, even in the midst of our need, still keep the priority on our brothers and sisters, trusting our brothers and sisters and our master to also care for us. So it is not that we are not the one, but we don't insist upon our need, but instead we trust our brothers and sisters and we trust our master. We trust our pastors. We trust our leadership. We trust the flock, the body, to take care of us. So I thank you for asking that question, Erica, to, to clarify, because in insisting on the one front, I'm not telling you not to make your needs known. But there's a difference between making our needs known and insisting on what we want, what we think is the solution, what we think will meet our needs. Does that help a little bit? Yes. All right. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So are we supposed to go out or stay with the 99? Is there a difference? Ah, Mariana. Excellent question. Okay. So first of all, one of the things that's a challenge with parables, and I hope I help all of our lessons on the parables, is as I already mentioned, they are flexible. So if you're looking for them to be extremely precise and prescriptive, you've missed the point. Now, that's not a correction, everybody, of Mariana. She has asked a question that has brought to light what we all need to recognize. We're looking to turn this into rules. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we humans do. We try to look for a way to turn this into, okay, so what's my, what is it I'm supposed to do? Rule number one, rule number two, rule number three. Jesus says he's teaching is not doing that. Jesus is interested in relationships. And so these, these parables are flexible. So that means because they're flexible, it's a lot of times, Mariana, a both and. So on the one hand, I must always stay in my relationship with God I'm trying to be the 99. I'm trying to be the one who's being fed, who's who's being watered, who's being cared for. I'm trying to be a good sheep. I'm not getting lost. I'm not getting stuck in a crack. I'm not getting into trouble. At the same time, there are times when I will be the one. So in like fashion, when you ask the question, are we to go or are we to stay? That has to do with the shepherd. Because in a very real sense, even when we go to make disciples, for example, a missionary is called, uh, and so they leave and they go someplace physically, they haven't actually left the 90 and 9. And so here's where our imagery and our language about going and staying, about being lost and being found, about being righteous and and being a sinner, we have to understand that it's a both and. You and I are sinners and righteous at the same time. We are sinners because we're still broken and we are righteous because of repentance and baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of his spirit and our pursuit of holiness. We are both at the same time. It's a work in progress. Many of us are both found and lost. We're more found now than we've ever been and yet we're still lost sometimes. We got no clue what's going on. (laughs) Okay, there are times we are mature and immature at the same time depends upon our topic, depends upon what we're dealing with. And so parables, many times, what you'll make a mistake. All of us will make this mistake is is if we try to force the parable down into a single either or. And it's not an either or. So also, Mariana, with Matthew 28 19, what is go? So is it go across your street? Is it go across the world? Is it go across town? Is it go across state? Basically, we need to go where the shepherd leads us and bear witness to him. And that might be across the classroom. That might be across the hall. That might be across the world. I'm done with that one, I think, unless Mariana wants to hit me back with a follow-up. Suresh. Man, I recognize that name. I wonder if that is one of my friends from India. Well, if it is, it is awesome to see you again. And if it's not, welcome. All right. How can the rest of saints trust the lost sheep who's left and comes back to the body of Christ? I sense that the lost sheep will be at a state of embarrassment when he returns. Oh, excellent question. So here's the deal. The reason that you trust the lost sheep is not because the lost sheep is trustworthy. You trust the shepherd. Let me put it in terms that that I know personally as, as my calling within the body currently as a pastor. I tell pastors all the time and leaders, you don't care for the sheep for the sheep. Because there will come a point when you don't care about the sheep. You will get tired of the bleeding of the sheep. Now, again, we're using imagery here, okay? We're all sheep, so don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm not a sheep. I am. But you'll get tired of the bleeding of your fellow sheep. And as I joke and say, using a little Aussie accent, you'll have yourself a nice little Barbie. You'll kill some sheep. We don't treat one another the way we are called to treat one another because one another are worthy of it. I am not worthy and neither are you. So throw that out the window. The reason you submit yourselves one to another, as Paul says in Ephesians, is out of re- reverence and respect for Christ. So if Christ is bringing them into the body, I'm going to reach for them. That's why we can also understand proper leadership, proper leading of the spirit. There can be wolves in sheep's clothing. Guess what Christ will do? He knows how to call out those wolves. He knows how to alert people to those wolves. And by the way, again, imagery, a wolf can become a sheep. I promise you, some of you, when you first walked into the church, were not very godly and you were not very safe. The apostle Paul, known as Saul, was a wolf that turned into a sheep. God's powerful. He's able to change that. And so you sense that lost sheep will be in a state of embarrassment. You're exactly right. Which means that when they come back, they need to feel nothing but love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you have love one for another. You don't need to clean them up. You don't need to ooh and aah at their, at their wounds. You don't need to be poking your nose into it. You need to love them. And Newark, you do a great job at this. When somebody comes back and they, you know, in fact, several can share testimonies of where they may have been away from God or been away from our church and they, and they had had a path that they walked and then they came back. And one of the reasons that they even stayed, the reason God even was able to reach them is because they did not get what so many places will do, which is that, that kind of that sideways look. Don't do that to them. Rejoice when they come. Be warm and friendly. I know they may look jacked up. They may not be dressed appropriately. They may have a new tattoo or a body piercing. They may have all kinds of problems that they're walking in with. Who cares? Love them. Well, isn't that affirming their unrighteousness? Oh, give me a break. You've got to be kidding me. If you're living righteous, if you're living holy, how's it affirming their unrighteousness? Your holiness is showing that it's unrighteousness. But you do so in an environment of love. You do so in an environment. Yes, I'm going to use the word affirmation, not affirmation of their brokenness, affirmation that they matter. The master went and found them. They may be beat up, broken, bloodied, all kinds of things. We love you. And giving them an environment where the master can then work with them. Great question, Suresh. What importance does loving one another or loving your neighbor have when we continue to love and show love to someone who is going down the wrong path, leaving the flock? All right. So this is another way of asking. It's a great question. It's another way of asking, I believe, this difference between the lost sheep and 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 the, the son who's leaving. And it requires discernment. When you're going to err, err on the side that it's a lost sheep. If It's not clear to you, err on the side, that, you, that it's a lost sheep. Because if it is a lost son, if it's a son that's leaving, okay? Probably shouldn't call it the lost son or the prodigal son. Call it the leaving son. If it's the leaving son, it'll become very apparent. Because you'll keep having to go farther and farther to reach for them. And every time you go farther and farther out, you can't reach them. And so that's where it comes in. You never stop loving them and you keep the house ready. You keep looking for them. The father was looking and the moment he caught even a glimpse, he called for the servants, get a robe, get a ring, get shoes, throw a party, give this man a bath. He's come home. A question from Jasmine. If God is everywhere, can't he be with the 99 and going after the one at the same time? Jasmine, you get a gold star. I did not say that because I didn't want to steal the thunder from the parable, but you are exactly right. This is another key element of what Jesus is saying is he's using the story, and we're taking it very literally about him leaving the 99. And he's, he's using a story where the shepherd would have to physically leave the 99 and go for the one. And the reason he does this is because he wants to emphasize the importance of the one. But with that said, you are exactly right. God never leaves the 99 to go after the one because he is everywhere. And so that's where the parable breaks down. And the point of the parable ceases to be the point. And we realize, and this is a great point of why I said, When Jesus goes after the one, he will not neglect the ninety and nine. Why? Because I know that he's able to be more places than at one time, more places, multiple places at one time. He also has all power. So he's not limited in his ability. He's also not limited in his knowledge. So this parable is actually less about God and more about us. I would argue to you that it has more about our attitude and Jesus trying to correct the attitude of either the person who's becoming high and mighty within the church towards their brothers and sisters, the childlike ones, or the one who feels they're righteous and the sinner shouldn't be allowed. And Jesus is saying, your attitude's wrong. You need to adjust it because the shepherd would leave the 99 and go after the one. Great question, Jasmine. I have one more. All right. Well, that, that the timing of that works pretty well. We're at 8.01, so let's put it up. How important is our transparency in ministering to the one? All right. Now, this isn't live, so I'm going to have to kind of, I'm going to make this up. If I get this wrong, Joyce, I apologize. I'm assuming that when we're ministering to the one, we're talking about transparency, about our own brokenness. I'm assuming it's coming from, and and uh, Erica, if she gives up, pops up a quick yes or a confirmation, let me know that and I'll keep going down that road. But I'm going to start down that road. Um Transparency, I believe, is part of whoever asked the question of how do we help the embarrassed one. Transparency is part of how we help the one who comes back embarrassed. One of the biggest mistakes that we as Christians make is thinking that if we admit that we have brokenness, we have somehow affirmed brokenness in others. That is not how it works. Brokenness in self simply points to the greatness of the God who found us. And if he found us, he can find you. So I believe transparency is critical. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean all of your deepest and darkest secrets. You are allowed to be led by the Spirit. You should have wisdom. But there are elements of myself as the Lord leads and guides that I I mean, I'm an open book. I don't tell everything all the time to everyone. But there are things that I absolutely... I will go to as the spirit leads. Transparency, your brokenness, having been saved by Christ, is one of the most potent pieces of witness to the lost sheep. Whether it be a brother or sister who has fallen, or it be someone who's never been saved. That's why the more that we become righteous, brothers and sisters, we got to be careful that we do not become so distant. Nobody can even relate to us because we've gotten all cleaned up. Well, we're not that cleaned up, so chill out on that. And again, if your emphasis and your focus is on the one and you're caring about them rather than yourself and how you're being seen and etc., then you're probably going to get that right. The spirit will be able to lead lead you and guide you. I have one comment I want to put up really quick. All right, we can do that. Ah, I'm the old guy. Well, Sharash, you were not the old guy. But I, I remember that name. It's a unique name, obviously, from India, my friend. It is so good that you have joined us on our broadcast. And yes, we loved you and your family. And I pray that everything is well with you. And uh, thank you for the question. That's exciting, folks. Suresh is one of the folks that came from India for a season uh, due to work and uh, was with us. And uh, we were very privileged to have him be a part of our all. And I'm glad that he joined us tonight. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am four minutes over, but it's been great tonight. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Looks like you've hung with us. The numbers have stayed up. Erica, thank you for being our technical support tonight. Did a great job. To everyone else, don't forget, you can find out more about us at newarkupc.info. We have small groups tomorrow night as well. So if you haven't joined a small group, go to that card, figure it out, drop in on us tomorrow night. We'll throw you into a group and you can join us and you won't have to miss Uh, But for the rest of you that are already in small groups, don't forget tomorrow night will be broadcast seven o'clock. Then at seven thirty, we'll immediately start with our Thursday night small groups. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining us. God bless you all. Have a great night. Good night.